0: Welcome,
2: everybody, to Beauty IQ, the podcast. I'm your host, Joanna Fleming. And I am your co-host, Hannah First. I actually wanted to talk about the hair laser that I've been having because I've posted a couple of stories about it and literally every time get so many messages. But I looked into this technology because it differs to the one that I've had before. So previously, I've had my legs lasered, And it takes like an hour and 15 minutes to do my whole legs because I'm having, you know, from the top of your thigh down to your ankle done. I think sometimes I do your toes as well, but I don't know if all places include that. So I decided to look into this new technology because I was like, I just honestly can't keep up with going back to a laser clinic every six weeks and taking an hour and a half of my time out of my diary to do that. And I had tried to do it before and just couldn't keep up with the commitment. And so I looked into this different kind of laser, which is still laser hair removal. And a lot of people have asked if it's IPL, it's not IPL. It's called um, super hair removal. I don't actually oh, know why it's called super name. hair removal, but it it I would definitely suggest that it is super. It's a lot quicker than your normal hair laser because it doesn't use the single, you know how they do like the it beep, beep, beep yep. and it goes like yep. all the way and you've got to do that the whole way up your leg. So they don't do that with this. They put a, a gel over your whole legs, which I think is why people think it's IPL. And they run the hand piece over your legs just continuously. They I don't saw it. stop. It looks, it looks, yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah, it looks weird. And I honestly had never seen anything like it until now. And it is a relatively new technology. But it's as effective as the traditional laser hair removal we're all used to. But it can also be done on fake tan. Ah. So I remember us, you and I were like, how annoying is it that we've got to scrub off our fake tan to go and have laser? So the good thing about this is because it uses a longer wavelength, it means that it's safer for more skin tones. So if you do have a deeper skin tone, you may be able to have this kind of laser hair removal. So it's definitely worth looking into if A, you hate spending time having your legs lasered, or B, you have a deeper skin tone or you like wearing fake tan and you can't be scrubbing it off. Mm. So definitely have a look into it. I went to, um, if you look up Mel Blazer on Instagram, that's where I went, Um, or you can look at my Instagram highlights. (laughs)
0: if you want to see. I have to go back every six weeks. Agree, it's it's so much time out of your day. And so, but at the moment, I'm getting my, because I'm getting skin needling done every six weeks and I'm getting laser hair removal done every six weeks. So last week, I I went to go get the skin needling, which was just incredibly painful, straight to laser hair removal on the highest highest setting. (laughs) And then, but the, the issue is because I've just had skin needling done, I can't get my face lasered, like my upper lip oh, and my yes, chin. Of course. So then I have to come back two weeks later to get the oh, lip and chin done no on a separate day. It is uh, trying to schedule all of your appointments so that they line up perfectly. Is yeah. a nightmare, honestly.
2: Yeah, the upkeep that we have as women is quite a challenge. But honestly, I just feel like laser hair removal and everyone's different and I don't expect everybody to want to go and have laser hair removal. But for me, it's something that has saved me a lot of time and money over the years and not having to shave my legs every two days is just, oh, it's, it's a it's blessing. Like my leg hair grows back so quickly. I, I
0: think that one... Once every six weeks is a lesser commitment
2: than once every second day. Yes, in your lifetime, yeah. Over like a longer period, definitely worth it. But also, you've got to be mindful of the fact that it can grow back once you have kids. So, what is on today's episode, Hannah? So, on today's episode,
0: we are going to be chatting to Dr. Lucinda, resident GP, all about discharge Mm. then we've got dr michelle rodriguez is joining us to talk about melasma
2: and then the products we didn't know we needed so today we're talking about discharge with dr lucinda who's obviously one of our favorite guests our resident gp i thought we could start with what is discharge actually made from like what's in it Mm.
1: Yeah, so vaginal discharge is a big topic that I don't think a lot of people talk enough about. And it's something that we can often feel really self-conscious about, if it's the smell, if it's the amount that we produce. And it's actually the reason why we exist as a human race, because Mm. without that, the sperm's got nowhere to flow up through to the cervix, into the womb to try and find the egg of its dreams. So it's actually created by glands that are within the cervix and also by the vaginal opening. And it's basically a mixture of antibodies and small proteins called antimicrobial peptides, which are basically like natural antibiotics. And this shows that there is some protection against getting some STIs and also some bacterial infections from um, having vaginal discharge. And it also helps prevent things like chafing, so friction in the vagina as well. And it also helps remove sort of dead cells that are normally created through normal body cycles that are from the uterus, the cervix and the vagina. It helps it to all come out. So it's a very, very important part of our Mm. body. I did not know any of that.
0: Neither did I.
1: I've never thought
0: to Google what what is discharge. Like that's just never (laughs) something that I've thought to Google. (laughs) But I'm very glad we're having this conversation now. Uh,
2: On that topic, (laughs) I remember being like maybe 17 and my best friend, I used her phone to Google something and her last search was, why do I have so much discharge? No way. we just pissed ourselves laughing at it. (laughs) they're very close and that's the kind of thing we tell each other so she just like thought it was funny that we'd seen it but (laughs) (laughs) bless her Um, so I wanted to ask, cause I know that this is a thing that discharge changes during your cycle. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, absolutely. Um, first of all, you produce normally, you know, about two to five mils
1: of discharge. So kind of almost like a teaspoon a day is totally normal guys. But wow, as a
0: you teaspoon.
2: Said, wow. That seems
1: like a lot. It does seem like a lot. Yeah.
0: yeah. That's, that's kind of sounds about, wait, the whole teaspoon on yeah. your undies actually. Yeah, you that, that sounds like a lot.
1: You can do it, you know, it's all possible. Yeah, right, okay, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, And so basically through your cycle, as you just sort of mentioned there, it does definitely change. So if we talk about menstrual cycles, so day one is the first day of your period. And then so obviously that's your bloodstain discharge. After your period, um, what happens is there's very little discharge and that's because of the low levels of estrogen and progesterone. It's basically as close as you're going to get to post, being postmenopausal essentially. And then as time goes along, your hormones level rise, it becomes thicker, then creamier, usually white, um, but it can also be a tinge of like yellow and gray there as well. Then around your ovulation time, that's when your egg gets released and then you get the really thin watery discharge, which then becomes a bit stretchy, like egg white almost. And it could be like loads of it. And that's when you might be like, I really need a panty liner. And basically it's this um, sort of discharge that allows the sperm to swim through the cervix into the uterus and fertilize an egg. And then after dish, um, ovulation, basically what happens is that your estrogen level, reduces and your progesterone level increases. And that leads to a very thick, sticky discharge, which makes almost like a plug at the cervix opening. And the reason that happens is to try and help protect the uterine or the, the womb cavity from any infections and hope that an egg was actually fertilized. And then the cycle happens all over again. Wow. God, the vagina is just so amazing. Great. Wow. Like, it's I, so cool. I just
2: It blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> all of these things are all for a reason like right? you yeah. just never think about it like oh i've got discharge and then like oh actually there's a full reason for that so
0: the watery discharge is actually so the sperm has has a pool to swim in totally wow <laughs> how cool is that wow. a pool i love That's that though. so cool <laughs> why do you think there's still a stigma around
1: discharge when I mean it's actually completely normal yeah i don't think it's talked about enough um from the beginning like It's really hard because maybe because people are a bit worried because it can smell sometimes and it's just sort of doesn't seem like a clean thing necessarily.
3: Mm. Like, I
1: just wonder whether or not that's it. But if we just sort of like try and educate people the importance of like why discharge exists and and why these different things happen in our cycle, then maybe it will help. But I think social media is a really big thing as well, where women can be made to feel that they need to have flower smelling discharge, essentially, mm. and having to use loads of products just to make that sort of super clean and like smell amazing. But it's it's actually not realistic because when we use products like that, it can really alter the ph of our vagina so our ph is normally a bit alkaline so about 3.5 to 4.5 and when we're using products even products that say that they're ph neutralizing like femfresh um <laughs> they can actually i'm so
0: sorry i knew this you was pointed at me don't worry that was <laughs> a <laughs> personal attack you, you don't have to be. you don't have to beat
1: around the bush i can tell <laughs> people know <laughs> um but yeah so these things they can alter the balance the bacteria that we have and the thing is we've got this healthy bacteria normally called lactobacillus and that's like our super healthy bacteria and that can be washed away by these soaps and things like that and if that balance is sort of disrupted then all the unhealthy bacteria can make the vagina more acidic and then lead to things like infections um thrash or bacterial infections so if you're prone to that then that's like a warning sign as um oh, maybe that's when i don't want to be using these kind of things although it's really important to like clean like the external part of the vagina ideally with water like i also use femfresh every now and again where it's like ah! i just really oh.
0: need to
2: like you know just- clean it a little bit more pot calling the kettle black. I know, <laughs> I know, I know.
0: So I don't use it every time. I don't use feminine hygiene wash every time.
2: a Couple of
1: times a week. Oh, that's yeah, that's cool. And just like a little bit because you don't want to be really vigorous about it. um mm. Because otherwise, the <laughs> okay. So sure. doing motion. an action <laughs> with her hand. I don't know what that is. So, yeah,
0: Sorry.
1: she's showing us how to wash our vagina.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Lucinda. Here we Sorry. are. <laughs>
1: I'm sorry. Oh god! But yeah, you don't want to be too vigorous about it because otherwise, like, you're going to wipe away all that wonderful bacteria. And like we mentioned mm. on once on the thrush episode, some of your healthy bacteria actually travel from your anus over to your vagina, and so mm-hmm. you don't want to get rid of it all. But it doesn't mean that when you're wiping yourself after you have a poo or a pee that you want to encourage that by bringing the yeah. poo side over to the urine side because that
2: will definitely give
1: you thrush or a bacterial infection. Yeah. So
2: wipe away. Yeah. Listen to our episode with Luke Cook if you want a uh, rundown on correct bum wiping for women. I did want to ask Lucinda – about discharge and what it can tell you so you did mention like changes can happen if things are disrupted so what kind of things can you detect if your discharge starts to change in any way so there's a couple of different
1: things to look out for i think a really important one probably to start off with is stis so sexually transmitted infections Mm. what's interesting about those is that only about 50 percent of people essentially will get symptoms alongside stis so if you're someone who i'm what I'm trying to make very fashionable here is that if you're going to have sex with someone for the first time, try to say, when was the last time you had an STI check? Are you clear? Because at the end of the day, you are protecting yourself and them also, you know, because it should be a nice sort of open conversation there. Because lots of things can be spread through that. So you know, the STIs, generally speaking, and even like HPV virus as well, which can lead to cervical cancer. So that's just like a side note. But basically, when it comes to STIs, if you are having regular different sexual partners it is worth getting yourself checked like every three months the most common sti or after sort of viral stis is actually something called trichomonas vaginalis have you guys heard of that before i've never heard of that no yeah so it's actually a parasitic infection and it's more common than chlamydia and gonorrhea actually and it leads to a green yellow frothy discharge smells really awful treated with antibiotics so that's something just to be aware of And then you've got your chlamydia and your gonorrhea, which everyone's more familiar with, um, and that can lead to a change in discharge, sometimes pelvic or abdominal pain, pain during sex, pain when you're passing urine, and sometimes some bleeding in between periods as well. I'm sure you guys, if, if you're having any of those kind of symptoms, you'd seek medical advice, but I'd really like to encourage that for sure. And then other things like around STIs, you can also have symptoms like irritation around um, the vaginal lips, like the vulva area, and itching around the, the vagina itself. Then obviously things like thrush, like we've covered a bit before. So that's basically an, a yeast overgrowth. And that's usually because the, the balance of the vaginal microbiome has changed. So there's less of the healthy bacteria, lactobacillus, around. So the unhealthy bacteria uh, sort of increase and the thrush yeast going hey we can overgrow now too and so that then leads to that cottage cheesy kind of discharge and it can be quite easily treated and we mentioned a bit before about things like even using natural yogurt so just pure natural yogurt no sweeteners mm. or anything like that added and because sh- studies have actually showed that it can be as effective as using so the thrush cream um, really is a lot of it yeah so it's just a wow. bit messier yeah and the thing with thrush is that things that can be sort of make that a little bit more common are things like diabetes the combined contraceptive pill which has estrogen and progesterone in it and even things like pregnancy so it's essentially sort of when you've got high amount of sugar and estrogen uh, around Mm -hmm. and then you've got things like red or pinky discharge so that can be totally normal in times like you know around your period where it's about to start it's kind of like a warning sign saying hey i'm coming out soon Mm -hmm. and then towards the end of the period you can get that brown discharge and that's just sort of like where the blood flow slowed right down and it's being yeah. oxidized in the vagina totally fine could be related to friction so don't be afraid to use lubrication guys um mm-hmm. like just to help sort of protect your vagina because it does get drier at times and there's a lot of pressure on women to be wet like all the time and I really like want people to be comfortable with using um lubrication Then going on to the sort of more abnormal bleeding discharge types. So when you've got bleeding in between your periods, like that's something that we called intermenstrual bleeding. And that's definitely worth seeing your doctor about, especially if it's happening frequently. So like within three months, if it's continuing to happen, definitely something to see your doctor about because that could be a number of different things from an infection to anything to do with the cervix to the Mm -hmm. womb itself. And then also are you pregnant potentially so with one one thing is if you've not had protected sex using a condom and you're not on the pill things like that then you could potentially be pregnant if you've got a bit of pink uh, stained discharge just around mm-hmm. the time that you're expecting your period right yep. so that's something to bear in mind and then there's things like if you are uh, in pregnancy so especially in your early pregnancy if you get a little bit of pink blood stained discharge that's um, something to definitely Consider seeing your doctor about. Sometimes it's totally normal to get that, but sometimes it can be a sign of an early miscarriage. So that's when that's worth getting that investigated. Um, and then lastly, on the red, pink, uh, sort of discharge side of things is after your menopause. So generally, when you've not had a period for about a year, and you're around sort of 50, like whether or not this could be something like endometrial cancer, if you've having now some new sort of bleeding again, so definitely, we're seeing your doctor about that. Another thing, lastly, probably would be Gray discharge. So that's something called bacterial vaginosis. I don't know if you've ever heard of that Mm, before. Yeah. So it's something like it's a sexually associated infection, not a transmitted infection. And it's because you tend to get BV only if you've ever had sex. And the main reason is because of that change in vaginal discharge, instead of being acidic, it becomes more alkaline and that's normally due to sort of the semen that can be inside there. And so other things as well, like we mentioned about sort of using um, products on the vagina, also douching. And that's a big one. And then using sort of um, feminine perfumes, anything externally there so that can alter that pH, which can lead to the overgrowth of certain bacteria leading to a very fishy smell. But um, that can be easily treated with antibiotics as well. So that's sort of all the discharges
2: um, mm, that I can. That's the discharge wrapper. <laughs> is the discharge wrapper,
1: lads. <laughs> Thanks,
2: Dr. Lucinda. Uh, pleasure, anytime. We've got a return guest. We don't do this often, but when we love someone, they end up back on the show quite quickly. So Dr. Michelle Rodriguez from Chroma Dermatology joins us again. Welcome back to the podcast, Michelle.
3: Thanks so much, guys. The uh, the feeling of love is mutual.
2: <laughs> yes, well, you've been across our other channels. So if you haven't seen, Dr. Michelle has been on our YouTube channel and our TikTok too. So if you've missed her over there, go and check her out. But today we're going to be talking Melasma. So, we've already done an episode on pigmentation in general, but we wanted to hone in on the details that surround melasma and talk about how it differs from other forms of hyperpigmentation. So, Michelle, can you give us a bit of an overview of how melasma differs from other kinds of pigmentation?
3: Yeah, thanks thanks for the question guys. I think it's so important for for listeners to be able to understand the differences because really pigment or pigmentation as I see it is an umbrella term. Something that describes a change in the skin whereby the skin is darker than the shade that is normal for that for that patient, and so there are quite literally over forty five causes of hyperpigmentation on the face. Now, melasma happens to be one of the most common causes of hyperpigmentation on the face, but generally speaking, it's it's localized, it's chronic, it comes later in life, and in terms of color, it tends to be light. Brown, tan, up to quite dark brown and even almost black in, in some skin types. Generally speaking, it affects the central regions of the face. So the central forehead, the apples of the cheeks, the upper lip, the nose, and sometimes even the chin can be involved. And in terms of features that distinguish it from, from other types of, of pigment, we really need to think about melasma as almost being diffuse pigmentation across an entire area of the face in most cases. Um, whereas say things like freckling, moles, dermatosis, papulosa, nigra are all spotty changes that occur on the face. So very, very small dots of hyperpigmentation where melasma tends to look more like someone's gone across your face with a bit of a paintbrush, if that makes sense. And in terms of the the prevalence of melasma, it really is different in different cultural groups and different skin types. So the prevalence can vary between sort of 1% of the population right up to 33% of the population. And, in fact... Melasma is the most common pigmentary disorder that presents in, in patients of Indian and, and Sri Lankan descent. And it's also exceedingly common in, in patients who have Chinese or Southeast Asian background. And so for patients that have skin of colour are all more at risk of developing Uh, melasma than, say, patients who have um, whiter, Caucasian-based skin. Mm.
2: Is it purely a genetic influence or is there something else about those skin tones that makes them more predisposed?
3: Um, I think the genetics plays an important role. And so we know that patients that have skin of colour have more easily activated or excited melanocytes. Melanocytes is the pigment Mm -hmm. cell within the skin. Any least amount of activation by ultraviolet light uh, UVA, UVB, and even visible light in patients with skin colour can trigger this underlying genetic tendency. But there are other factors involved as well, um, including hormones. Um, people who um, use, say, the oral contraceptive pill, pregnancy, hormone replacement therapy can also increase the risk of melasma. But it's not just unique. To women. So hormonal influences is not the only thing. 10% of patients that um, develop melasma are actually men. And that's something that's not often talked about. So yes, there are genetic influences and there's the hormonal influences. And then there's the environmental triggers. And and as mentioned, you know, the ultraviolet light, A, ultraviolet light B, and even visible light are really, really key in the development of of melasma. And as I see it, melasma is really almost a, a condition. That reflects how much ultraviolet light and direct light a patient has received over a period of time. So oftentimes people say, hold on, I don't work outdoors. Why did I get melasma? Or, you know, I don't necessarily go and sunbake. Why did I get melasma? And I think a key thing for your listeners is it's not just about that ultraviolet light that you get when you're jogging or swimming or cycling or or biking. It's that incidental ultraviolet light exposure that you're going to get as you drive to the shops, as you put your rubbish out, as you walk the dog, or interestingly enough, with visible light. So um, if we're using our mobile devices, our um, computers on a regular basis, or we're sitting in an office where we've got a window directly to, to the side of us, well, that's ongoing Visible light exposure that can activate pigment issues, including melasma, in those that are genetically predisposed. So it's multifactorial.
0: I have found, I don't know whether this this is true, but you've just said it's about light. Like I went up to Queensland. Like I'm obviously living in Melbourne, which is pretty cold. And um, as soon as I went up to, I was like, I've got a moustache. Like it was really, really noticeable. I was trying my best to stay out of the sun, but it was really hot and It's really hard when you're like even just walking out you put all the sunscreen on, but you're still kind of getting that incidental light. Do you think that's sort of a factor about where you might live?
3: Absolutely. We know that climate and, you know, where you are sitting in the world does play a role. Of course, being h- closer to the equator is is going to be not only um, a more year-round sun exposure, but also more humid. And it's good that you bring this up, Hannah, because some of the latest research actually shows that heat itself plays a role in melasma. And that's something that we didn't talk about earlier. But those people who have occupations, you know, whereby they're near say stoves or hot ovens, you know, they're opening and closing, things like that, tend to have higher rates of a melasma, And that's been um, studied very well in, in a group of Indian, Indian patients. So what you describe of the heat and humidity that you experienced up in Queensland is probably a result of not just incidental visible light exposure and reflected sunlight, but also the heat is probably playing a role in, in bringing that melasma on. So it is really tough. And it's, it's a hard yeah. ask to tell people to stay out of the heat and sun and direct sunlight. It's, you know, we've got to find other ways. of Yeah, well,
0: I was like, I've got to live my life. I've got to go live my life. Like I can't just avoid the heat. I love the heat. Like I'm just like, Mm. I'd rather probably have melasma. Mm.
2: This is probably a good segue to ask about SPF because this is something that I see get asked all the time. People ask me directly as well is the difference between chemical and physical SPF for people with melasma. Can you explain a little bit why a physical SPF is often recommended more for people who have melasma?
3: Sure. I think, you know, in 2013, we were just telling patients, make sure you've got a a high SPF factor sunscreen on board, something that's, you know, 50 plus or more. Make sure it says that it's high UVA and high UVB blocking. And that's kind of where the research sat. But subsequent to that, there's been a lot of research done on the effects of visible light and how we can block visible light and why that's important so a research paper a seminal research paper actually that really changed the practice of those of us that specialize in pigment disorders came out some years ago that showed that if you're able to successfully block visible light you will improve melasma Mm. so so what this is saying is For patients that have melasma, if you get a sunscreen on board that can block visible light, even without other medical therapy, you can subtly improve your melasma. And this is basically through an ingredient called iron oxide. So iron oxide is uh, naturally found, obviously, in in three different colours, and we can incorporate it into sunscreens, and they generally become tinted. So sunscreens that have tint in them, generally speaking have some form of iron oxide to be scientific and and precise about it you ideally need 3.3 percent of iron oxide in your sunscreen or more to provide a clinical benefit for your melasma and there are a couple of um, options available um, sunscreen wise that do have adequate levels of iron oxide in them to prevent the development of of melasma so when seeking a sunscreen you still need to make sure it's 50 plus or more that it says uva and UVB blocking and that it contains ideally a tint in it that contains iron oxide. Mm-hmm.
0: I have heard it's really frustrating to treat melasma. Are there any topical or professional treatments um, that you can recommend?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, when, when patients see me, there's a, there's a really lengthy discussion about what are the factors that are contributing in your life and how can we minimize these? Second, how can we get your skincare optimised? Oftentimes patients are using various fragrance-containing cleansers, moisturisers, sunscreens that might be making them more sensitive to sun. Third, there's a a really lengthy discussion about what sunscreen – and we've kind of covered that in in this podcast – what sunscreen is going to be effective – For you, and at the end of the day, you know, sunscreen's a bit like, uh, you know, a pair of shoes in a sense. You've got to get one that's really, really comfortable for you, that you love, that you will wear every day. Then we come to sort of active topical treatments. And and people can start with over-the-counter products. You know, niacinamide is a great start. That's vitamin B3 topically. Ascorbic acid or vitamin C is helpful. Azelaic acid, which can be found over-the-counter, is also a helpful topical that people can start with at home. And then we move on to the more prescription-grade topical treatments that include things like retinols, retinoids, and even topical tyrosine inhibitors, um, and the most commonly used one, of course, is hydroquinone. This can be um, over-the-counter in a concentration of 2% um, here in Australia, or if you want the higher-grade, more medical concentrations of, you know, anything above 2%, then it needs to be on a prescription, and it needs to be compounded by a compounding chemist. That hydroquinone can actually be mixed with other ingredients. So things like tretinoin and kojic acid, etc., can be pulled into the mix to try to optimise the outcomes for the patients. And after we've tried these sort of combination prescription medicines, if that hasn't quite been enough, we can then escalate to um, things like certain chemical peels, superficial chemical peels on a a regular basis that not only improve the melasma itself but can enhance the penetration of the topicals that are being used or prescribed. And then uh, something that's really been dubbed one of the biggest breakthroughs in in melasma treatment over the last decade has been the advent of a oral therapy called tranexamic acid which many of your listeners probably would have heard about the ones that are interested in and researched melasma would have would have seen this and I did a little bit of digging and and um, recognize that this had a great potential for, for a lot of patients who were not getting benefits on these other topical and in clinic therapies and started prescribing it myself in 2013. But this should really be reserved for patients who have um, more severe melasma and patients who have not responded to that topical over-the-counter stuff that we've talked about or the prescribed topical combination therapies and peel therapies that we just talked about. After the the tablets is really fourth-line therapy, which is energy-based devices, lasers, those sorts of things.
2: How would someone differentiate, like visually, what – melasma is versus hyperpigmentation like how would that if they're looking in the mirror right now and they're listening to us and they think they've just got hyperpigmentation you know what would be the difference
3: it's tough. Um, sometimes it's straightforward. You know, patients might look in the mirror and see that they've got freckles or they might have had a waxing mishap and they can see a whole lot of hyperpigmentation on their face. And, you know, they know that it's because of the waxing that they've got post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. But if it's not as straightforward as that, really, you've got to trust the advice of a professional. And, and diagnosis is the key to successful and, and you know safe treatment. Without that first step, you know, patients spend a lot of time, money and, you know, mind space trying to trying to help a problem, potentially dealing with the wrong problem, potentially making their existing problem worse. If someone's looking in the mirror and they're affected by the pigmentation that they see – then I would definitely say please get your dermatologist to have a look. Get a a pigmentary disorder specialist on board to have a look and give you the right diagnosis first And because often it affects quality of life. You know, a lot of people come in saying it affects – how I put my makeup on and whether or not I want to go out and people make comments about, you know, why is my latte still on my upper lip? You know, give it a rub or what's going on in your forehead. I think you've got some dirt there. It's hugely impactful. And and I think one of the biggest things that people can do is take that courageous step of stepping into to the dermatologist's practice and getting that diagnosis and then moving forward. And I think the, the key thing is, is expectation here. It's really important that people understand that this is a chronic relapsing condition. Anyone who says that X, Y, and Z treatment package can get rid of your melasma, beware. I, I think you know that we have to be realistic and, and, and those of us that understand melasma understand that while we can't cure it, we can certainly make it um, much Less noticeable than it is, and hopefully control it better in the long term.
2: Mm, That's a really, really important point to leave us on is that it is an ongoing thing that needs to be managed. And if someone does say that they can completely cure it and it'll never come back, that that's a red flag to look for. Thank you so much for your time today, Michelle. That was really, really helpful. If anyone needs further advice or they want to see a dermatologist about melasma, you can find Dr. Michelle Rodriguez at Chroma Dermatology in Melbourne. Otherwise, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, we literally interview dermatologists like every week. So just go back through our episode notes and you'll definitely find one in your city thank you so much for joining us today dr michelle we'll have you back soon and if you want to check out our tiktoks go to our tiktok
0: so this is another one of those like really random hannah products that like you really didn't even know it. well i didn't even know this existed yeah do you know what a wax melt is
2: yeah Oh, I didn't even know. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't even know how <laughs> to use it. Do they usually They usually go in like a little um, yeah. ceramic heating bowl? Yeah. You've never seen that?
0: No. So I've got the um, oil burner from Mason Balzac.
2: Ah, uh, okay. So I've put yeah.
0: the wax melt. It's a seer Trudon wax melt. It comes in a pack of four. It's actually only $39 for a pack of four, which for seer Trudon is pretty good.
2: Yeah, for seer Trudon, that's actually quite
0: Affordable. Seatrudon's the, the nicest but the most overpowering scents. Like, yes. They, they don't scrimp on the scent. No, they don't. Yeah, so each melt burns for eight hours. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's ages. Yeah, use it, it for te- it's $10 per wax melt because it's $40 okay. for four. I'm absolutely obsessed. I actually will repurchase with my staff discount, but wow. I will re- be yeah. repurchasing. <laughs> I want to buy all of them. Like, I want to buy all the scents. They are, it's so convenient. Like, there's, you just pop it into your oil burner and it melts, and then the scent, uh, yeah, obsessed. I didn't even know these things existed. I feel like a. Yeah. I feel like a kid in a candy store. I just love it. Anyway, that's mine. What's yours? I mean,
2: I'm quite shocked you didn't know what a wax melt was until now. I've, but, never, yeah.
0: I've never seen one. Uh, someone gave me like a sample of the wax melt. I'm like, what's this? Mm. I'm like, I thought it was like a mini candle with no wick. <laughs> <laughs> what's this? And they're like, you put it in your oil <laughs> burner. Anyway, so now I've got my $800 seared Trudon candle. I've got my... Yep scented matches and my wax melts mm.
2: yeah and I promise we're really down to work <laughs> 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 um, ah. so my product I didn't know I needed today is a fragrance I feel like I've done a few fragrances recently yeah, quite but we've a lot. had a new brands come on so I've just been using them so I actually um took a little sample vial from the office because I had smelt this Megan was filming something for socials and I smelt it just in the air and I was like oh my god what is that it smells so good and she was like oh it's the mason Crevelli papyrus moleculaire outer parfum and i was like mm, okay obviously hot man smell in a oh, big way okay um so it's actually gender neutral so they describe it as a bold gender neutral fragrance with notes of papyrus pepper coriander leather and tobacco mm. so it does have slight vibes of um cuban tobacco by lumira like very slight vibes but a bit fresher than that mm-hmm. so it's It's quite intense. It smells a bit smoky. It's still got this, I don't know, it's like still got this freshness to it. I think that must be the coriander actually that makes it a bit fresher than other like masculine scents that we like. Mm. Um, So the top notes are alemi, I don't know what that is, black pepper and coriander. The heart notes are papyrus, iris and carrot seed. What the f*** does a carrot seed smell like? What's But what's all, (laughs) can you explain to me what all of those things are? No, I don't know. I actually don't know. You're doing really well, Joe. The base is is Tonka Bean, Tobacco, Frankincense and Leather. Ah, Those I do know. We know those ones. We know those ones. Um, So, yeah, I think it makes a beautiful feminine fragrance, but also, as I said, it's gender neutral. So it does also suit men or anyone, really. I really, really like it. I've actually still got the vial in my bag and I don't often put fragrance vials in my bag, only if I really, Mm. really like them. So I've got, Juliet has a gun in there, not a perfume. I've got the Mason Crivelli Papyrus Molecular now, and I've also got the YSL Libre.
0: You've actually made me think, because I got the sample of eight. Did you get the sample pack of eight? Because that's on the – you can actually buy that sample pack so you can try yes. all the different scents. Yeah. These all look amazing.
2: Absinthe, The Absinthe one sounds good. I'm going to try that one. Yeah, it's a pretty – and look, to be honest, for the 30 mil, it's 149 So it's pretty standard fragrance pricing. It's yeah. not like out of this world expensive. Great. Hot, hot man smell. Yeah. Another, another hot man smell to add to the list. If you haven't seen the TikTok I did, I did a TikTok for us on the best – female fragrances if you like hot man smells. Yep, and nice. the ones that I picked were um, the Narciso Rodriguez uh, Pure Musk for Her, Lumira Cuban Tobacco, and the Orbe Cote d'Azur fragrance. But I would have added this had I tried it at the time that I did that TikTok. But, so yeah.
0: I can I choose my top three? So my, my, yeah. can I just choose my top three fragrances?
2: Sure. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you've already done your product. You didn't know you needed it. Yeah. So
0: I'm going to say... Um, Oh, BDK Gris Chanel. Yes, you do like that one. Can I not do Juliet has a gun? Because I always do that one, not not a perfume. And I feel like I'm annoying people with that. So let me choose something different. Definitely Narciso Rodriguez, Fleur Musk for her. Oh my God, everyone comments on that one. And they've got a mini 20 mil and it fits in your handbag and it's only $65. It is divine.
2: And then the other one I'm going to choose is Mm. I did I did think when you said, can I choose my top three, that you already had them at the top no. of my list. <laughs> website. I don't. Oh, okay.
0: What am I going to choose? Oh, yeah, Art Meets Art, Bohemian Rhapsody I'm going to choose. Okay,
2: cool. Great. Well, that uh, that wraps us up for another week. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends. It helps other people to discover us. And also, we really want to know what you thought about this podcast. So if you can leave us a review, that would be much appreciated.